Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR and it's coming up to 4 o'clock. Joan Bartlett with you tonight until 6 o'clock. On the program today, the situation in West Papua with activist Ronnie Carini, the trial of youth in Western Sahara from Kate Lewis, and also the situation of Western Sahara refugees in camps in Western Algeria. Tikba Ahmed Asala is out here from their camps to alert everyone to what is happening to her people. And the history and present situation in the Amazon with Sasha Gelisakakis. This was recorded from the Latin American Update program last Sunday at 10.30. Australian troops and warfare, warfare going to the Straits of Hormuz. Dr Sue Wareham from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and the life of an activist. I'll be speaking with long-time activist Peter Murphy. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and let's see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane Lister, when the government which promises to introduce the recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Financial Commission has listened to the intense lobbying of the industry that the recommendations will make life far more difficult. For its customers, not for itself, it's a selfless industry, but thanks to the lobbying, the post-con mission industry will look a hell of a lot like the pre-con mission industry, showing the government shared concern for the industry's customers. And this week, the Minister for Such Things, Jane Exhume the Bodies, said the government is committed to restoring confidence in the financial system, including building trust in financial advice as a true profession presumably as opposed to an untrue profession, which the Royal Commission proved it is. But after a bit of lobbying by the true Blawazi independently owned financial rip-offs Profits Association, Jane proved her commitment by extending a recommended upgrade of professional standards and qualifications to 2026. The association thanked Jane for responding, I'll bet it did, but said direct quote, It's a very good start, but we don't think it goes far enough. The government should give further leeway to advisers. Uh, Not far enough, Peter. He's the Ripoffs Association Executive Director, a very important title. Certainly not. Under the welcome concession, we can only rip off until 2026, unless we can come up with something innovative, like uh, charging the dead. Yes, yes, that sort of thing. Hard as it is to believe, even the Troubadour Aussie Capitalist Review described the heavy lobbying as trying to water down the reforms, which is having a lot more success, 100% a lot more success than goody-goody, black armband, long-haired, commie, wooden work in an iron lots lobbying for a bit of compassion toward Tamils being sent home to face the punishment for being Tamils, including two Troubadour Aussie citizens. Which brings me to a 
seeming dilemma giving me some difficulty and I'm hoping you can sort it out for me listener because we would never suggest so intelligent and great a man as the minister for keeping us secure and overseeing concentration camps razor wire and sink the boats constable Peter Duffer would be contradictory or even dare we say it hypocritical but remember we mentioned a few weeks ago the Duff decided to deport two indigenous true blue Aussies for so upsetting the invaders born respectively in PNG and New Zealand of an indigenous parent and brought here as babies lived here all their lives but as is the case with these lawless indigenous people who have no respect for her most gracious majesty's laws they emerged from a prison cell to be told that in the interests of true blue Aussie security they had to be sent back to the land of their birth okay okay thank you Pete for keeping us secure but but Pete then says the two children born in True Blue Aussie, True Blue Aussie citizens, have to go back to where they didn't come from. Well, not go back because they've never been there. I'm sure there's a simple explanation, but my stupid mind just can't see it. If only Pete could deport altogether all these bloody upstart indigenous people who attempt to stifle progress by frustrating attempts to improve transport, claiming the cultural sacredness of these ancient trees when the roads authorities promised to plant lots of replacement trees. What could be more reasonable and respectful of this pagan culture? On the positive side, the government wants to have that beautiful concrete testament to white sacred sites, the Eastern Freeway, declared a heritage site, so they can build yet another freeway, which will require them to remove lots more ancient trees, but we can be certain they'll plant lots more young trees, which will survive until the new freeway, the new transport panacea, becomes the transport problem and has to be widened, extended, duplicated. But then they'll plant well well it's all part of the progress these selfish indigenous people are trying to thwart including stopping people going about their lawful business in Melbourne just this morning another difficulty I'm having I'm having a few difficulties debate about vaping e-cigarettes and the concerted lobbying campaign by those contributors to public health the tobacco companies to legalize lots of additives like nicotine the concern for public health tobacco industry telling us its only concern is to prevent people smoking tobacco a laudable and credible ambition and these usual suspect pollies supporting big tobacco are saying libertarianism means the state should keep out of these things because what people do with or put into their bodies is their own business they can do what they like with their body fair argument too other than and here's the difficulty I, I then hear many of the same people who support the tobacco industry argument great libertarians declaring women have no right to abortion the men mostly men know what's good for their bodies Perhaps you could help me with these difficulties, listener. I'm obviously missing something. No connection, but at a Senate inquiry into the new jobs, former ministers Christopher Payne in there and Julie bash up the workers, well, some of the new jobs and directorships, the ones related to their respective portfolios, new jobs a day or two or a week or two before they left the plush seats, Julie's defence was, I stand by my reputation, Senator. What honesty. Damned by her own confession. 
over in the US of the UN of the US of the world where those who know no guns don't kill people big supremo Donald Trump or the poor has solved the problems of mass, mass shootings it's mental illness I am going to ban mental illness greatest ban ever ever brave move because if narcissism and self-delusion reflect mental illness he'll be in trouble himself in which case Donald go for it now there's also been a fair bit of narcissism and self-delusion across the Atlantic best summed up by a well best summed up by and here we go a poly called Boris a Tory achieved his ambition for glory but once he was boss he found loss after loss saw his ambition go awry Okay, I had to pronounce it or it wouldn't have rhymed, but we get the picture. That's all we need to say, really. But given the people voted whether to leave or not to leave, perhaps those pollies should consult a dictionary and look up the meaning of leave. Just when we thought a major contributor to the socialists losing the unlosable election was that its supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition was about as popular as a fart in a lift, we find his monumental unpopularity and feigned sincerity had nothing to do with it. Not that he wasn't to blame, along with all the other socialists. No, no, thanks to the Minister for Financing Capitalism, Matthias Rotten Tuther, we learned the socialists lost because of economic socialism. Little Billy was an uncontrollable economic socialist, he told the Sydney Prophets Institute, giving that so-called think tank something to think about. The socialists had been out of control since former big supremo little Kevin Rod for the workers and his economic guru Wayne Swan, Swan Song for workers practiced rampant socialism, something, listener, we missed entirely. But who are we to doubt Matthias? The socialists need to recapture the heady days of our sadly lamented former big supremo nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst treasurer, Paul, which the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, like Matthias' audience, constantly plead, showing what threats to capital nuclear and poor were. The economic socialism, Matthias said, explicitly committed itself to the flawed socialist pursuit of equality of outcomes, falsely asserting that True Blue Aussie had a major and growing inequality problem. A telling point, because his filthy rich of the filthy rich audience would have known full well there is absolutely no inequality in True Blue Aussie. Well, not just them, we all know that. Finally, Thank goodness we're getting closer to providing the freedoms the usual suspects in the government must have to practice their religion. Many freedoms snatched away from them when the nation turned to sin and atheism and voted for unnatural marriage between unnatural people. Critical religious freedoms like baking cakes. Surely good Christian bakers could sue all partners in same-sex marriage for damages for preventing them from going about their lawful business in the praise of the dear baby Jesus. Their discrimination means we must have the right to discriminate against them and claim compensation. The wages of sin is death. The new freedom of bill prevents evil people discriminating against good people. And vice versa, I suppose. We ask that saintly former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erika Betts, on the bosses. Uh, well, no, uh, that would be condoning sin against the dear baby Jesus. 
we must have the freedom to express atheism, to expose atheism, homosexuality, debauchery, wherever it occurs. Sinners generally, and religious freedom must give us the freedom to discriminate against these people in the name of the dear baby Jesus. Not to provide that right would be to condone sin. After all, that right is a God-given right, and given that all rights are God-given, then those who deny or hate God, hate the dear baby Jesus, by definition, have no rights at all, and no rights to have rights. But having said that, we must express our disgust and hatred and discriminate with our renowned Christian love and warmth. Uh, thank you, Eric. Pleasure. This bill should allow us to get 3CR off the air as well. Well, at least this segment's going off the air for another week. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And as I say, just about every week, he's back on tomorrow morning, pedalling his bike in to reach here by 9 o'clock, hopefully, for a cup of tea and city limits with a couple of friends. So that's tomorrow morning. Nine o'clock for City Limits. Human rights activists worldwide have condemned the violence by Indonesian forces on West Papua, which has increased in intensity over the past month as Indonesian military forces operations have intensified in the remote mountainous areas and increasing calls that West Papua must be opened up to the outside world, especially the mountain regions, for an independent Human rights investigation by the UN Human Rights High Commissioner and especially the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Extrajudicial Killings. I'm speaking with activist Ronnie Karini. West Papua is in the midst of its largest civil uprising since 2000. Why is this happening? Yes, definitely uh, what we're seeing in the latest development in West Papua and the state response last month has been a big shift, especially many years that since Indonesia occupied West Papua and administered the region after the New York Agreement in 1962, what we are seeing right now, it's another notch up a bit by which the outcome this year alone, especially in the month of August, uh, the Pacific Island Forum Leaders Summit in Tuvalu, the outcome, especially through the communique, the wedding on the communique is one of the strongest we've seen in the recent years, by which the leaders have now called on the Indonesian government, especially uh, there are several points. The first point is that they acknowledge that there is ongoing violence and, in, and increasing escalation in the human rights situation in which there needs to be an urgent visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, to visit the region. And as well as also they acknowledge that there is a need to identify the root causes of the conflict by peaceful means. And so this statement, it also includes the Australian government and New Zealand government that they are 
now recognizing and signed up to this regional commitment. So that is one response to um, this increasing uh, pricing and as well as state responses. The other one is um, the discrimination slogans that were used um, in the pre-Independence Day celebration of Indonesia, by which there was a setting, a scenario that happened in, the, in front of the student, Papuan student dormitory in Surabaya, second largest city in Indonesia, uh, by which the national flag, the red and white national flag of Indonesia, was torn down and thrown into the drain in front of the student dormitory, by which there was the nationalist gangs. And these nationalist gangs comprised of two different groups. One is from the, the Pancasila youth, where they uphold the nationalist idea or patriotic ideas of the state of Indonesia. And then there is this other nationalist group called the FBI. These are the youths of the Islamic groups. And so they were present in front of the student dormitories, and they stirred this tension and racial slogans and create this hatred towards the Papuan students who were there, that they are the perpetrators of which pulled down the, that flag. And after four to five hours, the response was the Detachment 88 that came in and broke down the front of the gate and then went into broke the student um, dormitory door and then arrested 43 Papuan students. So that sparks this another layer of in response by the Papuan in general um, to come out and call on Jakarta that since day one, Indonesia occupied the region, the discrimination, the racial vilification of the indigenous people has been and has continued to experience that. So that was when peaceful actions were happening around West Papua on the 19th of August onwards. And what we're seeing is the state responses through deployment of security forces. On record, Mr. Wiranto, the Minister for Legal Security and Political Affairs, um, have gave the permission for the chief of police and chief of the army, the TNI, to establish their office indefinitely to calm the situation and stabilize the situation. But what we have seen in the last two weeks and into third week, and in the last 24 hours especially, is that those deployment of those security forces are not to maintain peace and order, but trade into arresting Papuan leaders. And so yesterday afternoon, we got confirmation of the deputy chairman of the ULMWP, it's the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, Bukta Tabuni, a former political prisoner and the leader now in West Papua arrested. So they, they arrested him uh, 5.30 to 6 p.m. yesterday evening and now detained in the Brimo police station in Kota Raja. So what we're seeing now is that this deployment of troops are going there to arrest and they're on a manhunt, basically, all throughout West Papua. And there are several names that now they are looking for. So many of the leaders now are going into just lying low because of this increasing military presence. So that is the other element of in terms of the discrimination and as well as what actually 
uh, unfolds with the West Papua uprising is that, that, that response from the state. So this is where we're seeing the shift, and this, it's different from um, any other um, the, you know, the struggle for the last 50 years. So for us, we're seeing that this also creates opportunity now to, and especially the need for the visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michel Bachelet. Has there been any move on that? Has there been any response to that call? In the region, definitely there is a call already. There was a response from Michelle Bachelet as well, or last week, especially in acknowledging that this issue of um, the escalating violence is concerning, and it is very important that there is a need for all parties to come to a form of dialogue by peaceful means. And this was also, prior to her comments, uh, also the Secretary General from the Pacific Island Forum, Dame Taylor, have also came out and make a statement around uh, the recent tension in West Papua and the state response through security measures. And so there's been that calling. Even here in Australia, um, at the doorstop in the Parliament House, Scott Morrison have also commented that this issue now on human rights it's a matter of the UN um, that needs that visit. So Prime Minister Scott Morrison is acknowledging their regional commitment to that outcome from the Pacific Island Forum and calling for that visit. And so this even also echoed through the, vo- uh, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea. Also needs pressure on Indonesia to stop this violence against the people? This is an interesting um, take on this because what actually since those incidents happened after the Indonesian Independence Day Jokowi came out publicly to call for patience and forgiveness but on that same day he calls for or he signed up for the deployment of troops to go in so indirectly what we are seeing is Jokowi as the president is just a name to a paper but Wiranto, the Minister for Security, Legal and Political Affairs, is making the call. And Wiranto, his history goes back to the case of Istimo, and now deploying security forces as a way forward to solve this problem. For us, we're, we're seeing it's not, the, it's not solving the problem or the issue or the tension that just sparks off from last month. This is escalating the violence. And so... We're seeing that now Jokowi is not even making any public statement. It seems to be Wiranto and then the chief of police. And then especially with the, the manhunt of Papuan leaders, it's very concerning. And also children are being caught up in this, aren't they? There's children being shot. Absolutely. Um, in the in DAI last week, there was, yeah, there was a nine-year-old child got caught, even arrested on the 15th of August. There was a, a seven-year-old boy was arrested as well and part of the massive number of 151 uh, Papuans arrested on the 15th of August. Even women, we have one of our young Papuan women um, coming from Sorong to Manokwari. Upon her arrival in Manokwari, she was targeted by the security forces and was called up for inspection, and so she was detained. Her name is Sayang Mandabayan, and she's been arrested and now placed in isolation. And 
can't even have any uh, families to visit, only legal representatives who are being accredited by the state. And to visit her, they have to have a distance of two meters to talk to her. And so that also the, shows the role of women as well um, and being arrested as well. What's the role for the West Papuans living outside West Papua now, including yourself? What's your main focus? So our main focus is to build more awareness and the solidarity, consolidating basically the basis of support and basically calling on the, the, the CSOs, civil society organizations, NGOs, through church organizations, the unions and through the ministers of parliament. Yesterday we had the opportunity to visit the parliament house whereby a petition that was signed by at least 17,000 Australians. This was so organized and facilitated through the office of the women office in Melbourne, at, down at the Docklands, uh, for several months. And so it culminated with the yesterday handing over of that petition to uh, leader of the Greens, Richard Di Natale, uh, independent member for Clark, Andrew Wilkie, as well as Jed Tani from the Labour Party and for them to take this petition and also the support of the Australian people through that petition to table it at the, at the Parliament and also to raise the issue of human rights as well as the right to self-determination of the people of West Papua. So our role as um, uh, Papuans in diaspora is to amplify the voice of the people inside and what now they are calling and demanding as well for a free, independent a process of a referendum. And so that has been now the leader and the chairman of the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, Benny Wenda, is very much echoing on that. And when does that decolonisation meeting going to happen? It is a process and every effort are pushed towards that. And the legal argument of how Indonesia took over the administration is one uh, pathway that has been now been looked into and that is also to uh, that's one as well as the human rights so this week as we're speaking Vanuatu government uh, is taking a resolution forward to the UN Human Rights Council thereby to to call on the member states of the UN Human Rights Council about the escalating violence and the abuses and that, they, that the need for the visit of the um, Human Rights Commissioner. Um, in terms of the process, the political uh, pathway is that the argument around uh, West Papua is a non-self-governing trust territory. And so there is this whole process of listing it, it and listing it back to the UN Decolonization Committee. And that is a, another mechanism and a process of its own um, to really get into that. And there has been leeway that has been, efforts have been put into that through the ULMWP and the government of Vanuatu to, to explore that further. But as, as I can see, it is a process that requires a deeper and a more robust work into identifying those UN mechanisms and the channels and to place a motion of this case back to the UN General Assembly to have a resolution by which that process can enhance, be enhanced further 
into the decolonization process. Okay, just a final word, Ronnie. The final word is, um, firstly, I thank you for the Australian people for their heart and support, ongoing support, especially through the petition that we submitted yesterday that will be further echoed through the Parliament House. And for the Australian government, especially, that now they have to step up in their regional commitment in calling for the visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, took immediately. This is very critically important at this very time that this visit must be facilitated before there is more bloodshed happening in West Papua. As we are seeing, many of our West Papuan leaders are uh, incarcerated and put in isolation, and there will be more blood spill as there's deployments of security forces on the ground. And also we're calling on the Indonesian government, especially Jokowi administration, that he has to and must take the leadership in meeting with the West Papuan political leaders through the United Liberation Movement for West Papua to find the solution and negotiate a better solution forward for the people of West Papua and as well as maintaining the peace, security and stability in this region. Thank you. And that was Ronnie Carini, activist for West Papua. Come to a very special evening of music, dance and dinner. Joy of Freedom, Pacific Voices Sing Out for West Papua. Celebrate the launch of the CD Joy of Freedom on Saturday the 21st of September from 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Entry is $15 and includes dinner. Performers include the Chendrawasi Dancers, Pacifica Victoria Choir, Corianne, the Black Sisters, Black Orchid String Band, Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat, and Tatame and the Neighbours, because music is our weapon. More information at Facebook event Joy of Freedom, a 3CR supporter. On the 19th of July, Sahrawi football fans flooded the wide Samara Boulevard, the main route through Layun, the Western Sahara's largest city, to chant Un, Deux, Trois, Viva, Algeria, and raise the Algerian flag shortly after the country's national team beat Senegal in the cup final. But the mood changed when the Polisario flag was raised and chants called for self-determination. Police threw stones. Demonstrators responded in kind, then gunfire, rubber bullets and live bullets, water cannon and tear gas. Police were accused of deliberately running over one demonstrator who died. The result, at least 200 injured, some critical, and 10 young people arrested. They faced court in El Ayun on the 4th of September, and Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association takes up the story. So, yes, I received some, a story from Naza El Khalidi, a journalist who was interviewed on your program, Jan, a couple of weeks ago. She um, was observing closely what was happening to these people. And on September the 4th, when they were expecting this, having this trial, the courthouse was cordoned off from adjacent streets so that the public couldn't get close. The important human rights sort of hero, Mohammed Dadash, president of Kadapso, one of the human rights organizations in Western Sahara, was not allowed in. He's a very distinguished and revered human rights uh, activist. 
I think he, he was in prison for longer than Nelson Mandela and finally released after a lot of international pressure some years back, I mean, like 20 years ago, maybe. So it's quite important that... It, and he's won international awards, including from the Rafto Organization in, of Human Rights in uh, Norway. So he's a, a, it was very um, significant that they wouldn't let him approach. But there were two other human rights activists who apparently were also refused in the morning, but they were allowed in the courtroom in the afternoon. A lot of surveillance and security people in the courtroom, and the families of the prisoners were also allowed to be in the room. But at least one international observer who wanted to attend was turned back she was not allowed, I think her flight went to Casablanca, and she was not allowed to then take the flight on to Al Ayoun. They've seen her before, as it were. They knew what she was going to do, and they even said to her that she supported an organization that was against Moroccan interests, and so she was not welcome. So Christina, she, her name is Christina Martinez from Spain, uh, who has attended a lot of trials in the past, she was turned back, and that's, that happened to her several times. What then happened was that the they, um, charges that they were accused of are regarded by the Saharawis as trumped-up charges. They were accused of sabotaging public vehicles, putting up barricades on public roads in order to disrupt traffic, and attacks on the public forces. As I understand it, the Barricades were put up by the security forces trying to contain the, the crowds that were gathering to celebrate this unexpected or perhaps you know, amazing victory for Algeria in the football. It was a joyous celebration. It wasn't an angry protest or anything like that. But the Moroccans just don't like congregations of Sahrawis in the streets and they like punishing Saharawis at any opportunity. The charges have unfortunately led, led to for people just demonstrating in the street and not doing it very much. It, it was, it's pretty harsh that they've had from, uh, sentences from one year through to two and a half years. Some of them are just two years and some two and a half and apparently some of them one. There's also some minors who are on probation on the same charges, so they're presumably not in prison, but the young ones who are uh, over 18, they are uh, being held in El Ayun Black Prison. I haven't yet heard whether they've been able to stay there because that would be their wish if they've got to go to prison. They would like to stay close to their families so the families can visit but if the Moroccans are feeling like punishing them even more, then they may send them to other prisons uh, further away, such as happened with the Gadeh Zik prisoners. Yes, it's uh, yet another example of the Moroccans really being quite unreasonable in their reaction to Sahrawis simply celebrating a, a win in football. Is there any indication of how these young people have been treated since they were arrested? 
Oh yes, well I think they've been probably been beaten and tortured. I mean, it, it did say that they were mistreated by the police who had uh, were present in court before being um, taken back to the prison. That uh, information has got through to uh, to them, and um, yeah, so it's um, it, it's it's unfortunately very standard that that happens. I'm afraid with the Hadaways accused of any misdeeds at all. These young people's families will also have to pay fines? Well, yes, that's right. There's a, um, I'm not quite sure whether it really applies to the minors. It says something in the, the, the juveniles in the report I'm reading. Not This is a different report from NAFA. Uh, the juveniles will be, be required to pay a fine of 30,000 dirhams, which is about 3,000 euros, which is still far too much for any Sahrawi family to find because most of them are unemployed and that, that would be very difficult for them to find. I hope that's a fine for them collectively and not for each one, but um, the, it's uh, for uh, supposedly against the damage that they might have been responsible for. So again, it's not really clear whether they were responsible for the damage that's happened. Just reading one sentence from Nazar's account, the judge asked the detainees if they wanted to apologise to the General Directorate of National Security. The defendants replied that they did not commit a crime or violation and therefore there was no need to apologise. The defendants have denied all charges and claim they are innocent. Yes, they've been quite um, feisty about that sort of thing. And, and they understand their rights, you know, they, they understand that where the responsibilities lie in these things, in these matters, yes. Well, we know that um, the international focus on Nazar made sure that she didn't go to jail. What about these young people? Yes, I mean, they've uh, obviously, Nazar is trying quite hard to get some in- information around uh, and abroad but they haven't had the same degree of support that she's received and and maybe they regard her probably as a worse risk, if you see what I mean, because she's a journalist who's who's spreading the word, whereas these are just young people, young Saharawis, who were out in the street having a good time. And one woman died. Oh, yes, well, that's important too, of course. There was a, a death and... Again, I mean, one would like to see the, the police in the dock for that because, as I understand it, this young woman was simply leaving her place of work and going home relatively late at night, like at 9 o'clock at night or something. Probably she'd stayed back to, to do something. And the police just ran into her, knocked her over, and a second vehicle then ran right, you know, right over her. She died, yes, and, and absolutely, completely innocent. She wasn't even one of the ones celebrating in the streets, so quite inexcusable, this kind of reaction. And, of course, it would be two police vehicles, wouldn't it, because they would have stopped any other vehicle being in the road? Oh, yes, that's right. Even if they were unmarked, they would be uh, police or security vehicles, yes. No appeals, are there? haven't heard yet if there's uh, going to be appeals, but we'll see, we'll see. All right, Kate, thanks.
Thank you. You have been listening to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association talking about the trial of 10 young people charged after celebrating a soccer win by Algeria. It has been claimed that this violence by the Moroccan occupying authority was the worst to rock the territory in several years. On Tuesday Home Time we've been reporting on the situation in the occupied territories for many years, mainly through Kate but also a small number of Western Saharans who have come to Australia to highlight the oppression and human rights abuses. Morocco occupies two-thirds of Western Sahara, including the Atlantic coast and all the major cities and natural resources, with the remaining one-third controlled by the Polisario Front. But while the population live restricted lives under occupation and threats from Morocco, there is another section of the Western Saharan citizenship which is eking out an existence in refugee camps in the harsh western Algerian desert, an hour's drive from the Algerian city of Tindouf. Today we focus on life for those in those camps, which were established in 1975-76 by Saharawis fleeing war. I'm joined now by a young Saharawi who was born in the refugee camp, who works in the Ministry of Health, in the refugee camp, Tisha Ahmed Salah. Tisha, can you talk first very briefly about more about the reasons why these camps came into existence nearly 50 years ago? The camps, they were like, after we got the invasion from Morocco and Mauritania in 1975, uh, most of the people fled from the war and they established themselves in southwest of Algeria. The war continued for 16 years and the ceasefire broke. Most of the people, they thought like they would be granted the referendum and self-determination and they won't be uh, staying in the camps for a longer time or longer period. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And the camps, they were like, uh, yeah, they stayed there until now, which is more than 45 years. You're in another country. Algeria. What was the connection between Western Sahara and Algeria that allowed those camps to be set up? One of the main connections is actually it was the closest border because we were invaded by both of our neighbours, Morocco from the north and Mauritania from the south. So it was the only chance to to flee to it was Algeria, which is the only country that did attack us. And that time Algeria was has. Uh, it has a very good standing movement, like, you know, liberated movement. They always supported South African against the apartheid regime. Uh, they supported Palestinians. They supported a lot of uh, liberation movements around the world. And uh, the Sahrawi case wasn't any difference, and especially a neighbor, a Muslim, and an Arabic country. So they opened their, their arms, basically, to the Sahrawi refugees. You were born in the camps. You lived there continuously till you were eight years old. What was it like growing up in those eight years? What are your memories? The camps now has a few generations, and I was one of those generations. When we grow up, we already have a basic establishment of the refugee camp. We have, like, small clinics. We have school, kindergarten. Everybody has the same. Every family has tents. People live in, like, you know, kind of a community settings and I wasn't actually experiencing any 
memories of I am different, so this is like something strange for me because everybody has in, has the same. And we had very happy childhood. We played with you know in the in the sand. We played with you know with the toys that we made. Actually, we created ourselves, and we were like very happy until we were exposed to another culture, another countries, and uh, and that's my journey when I was eight when I participated in the Spanish um, vacation in peace when small Sahrawi kids go to Spain and spend the summer in Spain with the Spanish families. And that time and that year I experienced, I knew that my situation wasn't right and, you know, uh, I wasn't a normal uh, child. I was exception, in exceptional conditions rather. And, yeah. It must have been either frightening or exciting to actually leave your family and travel overseas with, to somewhere you, you had no idea where you were going, I suppose. It's, I think when I was leaving home, it was very frightening. I was very scared and, you know, attached to my family, of course. And I was like, no, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go. And everybody's like, no, you have to go because this is different and it's nicer. Uh, they always say it's nicer, so but I never know how it would be nicer with my mom and my dad not there and my, my, my small uh, siblings. And but since you know all of us as small kids from the same refugee camp from the same age going together, so a little bit in the way we got like excited, but it was actually nicer because we are regardless of like missing home or you know missing your family, but what you are offered is totally different. You offered like to swim, you offered to play with toys, you offered uh, nice food, var- you know sweets. Uh, everything was, you know, different in a nicer way, uh, even though you got homesick once in a while and, you know, and it was difficult because there were like no phones, no communication with your family. So basically you are away from your family and you don't know actually what's happened after. Yeah, but uh, we came up, uh, we, we came back very curious, very anxious to know why we are different than others, why we don't have what they have, you know, all these small kids question when they are growing up. And what were you told, what did your parents tell you when you asked those questions? Then I was introduced to, to our real struggle that we are refugees and that we actually have a nicer home. And, you know, we have sea, we have fish, we have houses, and we have all of this, but, you know, it was taken, it was taken away from us. And uh, that we are fighting to get it back. And I still uh, remember my dad explaining to me, that our house is nearby the the ocean and you know when the ocean is really there is a lot of wind sometimes actually the, you know the waves come all the way to to my house mm-hmm. and this imagination is still in my head until now i always imagine my house on the uh, on the shore so i still hope that one day i get that house <laughs> and then you go back to a, a desert and the, the whole reason for those children going to spain was because of the the heat of the summer yeah uh, you know the Spanish uh, people; they weren't happy about what Spain did to the to the region or to the colony. So one of the means to to help the Sahrawis, they have the small kids because they know they can't bear the heat. Uh, the temperature can go up to more than 50 de- Celsius degrees in, in in the summer. And one of the thing, and also to establish a connection between you know fa- Spanish families and Sahrawis families, so they can support you know, with anything they can, with food, with clothes, with money, anything. So that was one of the, the main reasons for this kind of... Uh, and then until now, still, 
still going on. My sister, she just came back from her holiday, and her host family, they are crying because she left them. So, Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? And then you had another opportunity a bit later yeah. as you grew older. A teenager? A teenager. Actually, I left home officially when I was 12 to Algeria, one of Algerian cities, to finish my secondary school. So that was another experience. I was also introduced to Algerian culture and I, you know, another type of, uh, you know, different environment. So we, I studied, we go there for one year and come back only in the summer. It was very difficult for me. That one was really hard because it wasn't like going for a nicer place uh, per se or, you know, when you have enjoyment uh, experience, but it was like rather being independent being by yourself, taking care of yourself, and, you know, you are responsible for your education, responsible for your health, everything. Basically, all the responsibility you can handle was thrown at me when I was 12 years old. You grew up quickly. Yes. I, <laughs> I think we were forced to grow up. <laughs> we, are, we are forced to be fighters. Yeah. And when you're talking about going overseas to your education, that brings in the issue of why you don't have high schools in the desert. You only have primary schools. We have only gr- primary schools, but uh, and that's because of the refugee camp, uh, young, um, you know, establishment. We're always, like, waiting when we're going to go back. We are not settled there to say, okay, this is your home and build whatever you want. We always to ha- try to build what can maintain us, uh, you know, in that small period of time. And that's we're going to face. I will tell you later about the problems that I face right now because of that idea that we are refugees only for a shorter period. You are not supposed to be established. You are not supposed to build and stuff. So we, we travel to Algerian uh, cities to further our education. Algerian, they were very nice because they gave us free education, free home to stay and yeah, until we can finish up to you know, university. I was there until I was until high school, and then I had another opportunity to study abroad in Norway, and that was another different um, story. <laughs> That's a huge difference from yeah. the desert to yep. the snow, the ice. Yeah, that's just, you can see it, weather shock or climate shock. <laughs> it was another different experience, but I, I, I'm glad I, I, I experienced it. And what did you study and what did you learn and, and who are you now? In Norway, I studied high school, for international high school called the United World Colleges, when we granted international baccalaureate. And then I f- finished my studies in U.S. also in biology degree. So what was it like in the U.S.? It was different. So uh, as we go, as we travel around the world, we discover that we think Sahrawis and refugee camp that everybody knows about us, like everybody's living our, you know, our conflict, and everybody's trying to help us because we believe that our ish, our cause is a just cause. It's supported by international law. But as we travel around the world, or as I traveled around the world, I always discover that, you know, no, no many people actually know about us. So I always have this uh, introduction saying, oh, I am from Western Sahara. And then I have to explain, to start, instead of like just carrying on a small conversation, how are you, and going on with getting to know each other, I always end up like talking about history, about the geography of the cause, and, you know, about the struggle. So sometimes I find it pleasant when I hear like a nice audience, they want to hear about me, and sometimes I find I'm forcing people to hear about it, so <laughs> it's kind of difficult. Why don't people know about your struggle? 
personally thinking it's because we are very peaceful people. We are not violent people. So our people, they don't really care about what's... If you are not doing any travel to the world, why, why should we hear about you? We are one of the oldest refugee camps in the world and the largest by far. And still we get small attention from the international media. Unless, you know, there is like, you know, bombing or there is like, you know, something. And then we don't do that. We are just very peacefully trying to solve our issue. You're talking about nearly 200,000 people in those camps. Yeah. How is it run? It's very well organized. It's run by the government, the Sahrawi government, which is legally uh, recognized by UN as uh, the presidency for Sahrawi people. It's constructed of five camps, and each camp it has its own hospital, own schools, primary schools, uh, governor, you know, small administrations to run the region, and then to go up to central government when the, you find the president and the ministries and other yeah, institutions. Can I ask you about the position of women? Because often in many developing countries, women are not quite equal with men. How do you go with... I think in our case, as a Muslim and uh, Arabic countries, we are so different in the sense that women uh, play a big role in the refugee camps and in our cause. You know, in the beginning of the refugee camp, men were like busy fighting in the war and they didn't have the chance to actually organize the camps. So the camps was ma- mainly organized by women and built by women. And we just gained that position until now. We are a member of the government, we are a member of the parliament, we are 95% of the Sahrawi Ministry of Health are, are women, employed are women. So we gained that position and we still have it as long as we want to maintain it. <laughs> And as with all refugee camps around the world, you have to have international support to keep those camps going. What keeps your, what helps you keep your camps going? I'm glad you brought that up because uh, the whole refugee camp depends on humanitarian aid, mainly from UNCR and the Red Cross and uh, the European Union uh, international aid. So, this brings us to the main problem of long time refugee camp period first of all because of the type of the aid we receive and second of all because of the duration so usually people they support the refugees for aiming for a shorter period of time uh, giving them like a certain type of aid food water medicine are the main things so since we receive the same type of aid for so long it has infected the health mainly the health of the people because they are not providing for example diverse diets for a longer so imagine you receive the same diet for over like 40 years I think uh, health professionals they will understand what that means especially we have a lot of uh, high anemia malnutrition different types stunning and and um, also people they get tired of giving us the aid so it's called like donor fatigue with the time and the, the economic crisis, the coming go up and down, the aid goes down and, you know, uh, and now we are suffering a lot of cuts from the aid, so also the people are paying for it, or the population are paying for it. Is it also a fact that Morocco tries to downplay the number of people there, which limits the amount of aid that you get? Yes, that's another strategy, and also they lobbying the governments to not give the aid to, the, to this kind of specific uh, type of uh, people, yeah. 
Can I ask you about water? You're in the middle of a desert, desert. A, a very harsh desert. Very harsh desert. The water, uh, the s- we got the water from the wells, but it's not actually about the quantity of water uh, the, is the issue. It's actually the quality of the water. And it's very rich in minerals that need to be cleaned out from the water, and we don't have that technology yet. So imagine people also drinking this type of water for a longer period, and we have actually done studies that shows the effect of iodine on the health because we have very excessive iodine in the water that we are drinking. And your role in the Ministry of Health, can you expand on what you do who works with you, what your main focus are? I worked in the Minister of Health in various positions, but one of my first involvement was with the Norwegian Church Aid, an NGO that was working in the refugee camps, mainly supporting the hospitals with the fresh food. I was talking earlier about how the aid not providing diverse diet. So this NGO were like trying to focus on the nutrition aspect of the of the health. So they were like providing hospitals where they have patients, they are already sick of any, with the fresh food that can actually uh, help them to recover f- faster. And also doing some research on the, you know, on iodine, on diets, and how it affects the health of the, of the Sahrawi people. And then I was uh, also involved in the African Union. Uh, so I presented the Minister of Health in different uh, occasions, conferences and meetings in the African Union. And what role does the African Union play in supporting the people of Western Sahara? We are one of the member states of African Union, the founders actually. So we've been involved in African Union since its start. They condemn what Morocco is doing. Uh, they always pushing them to accept the, the right for the Sahrawi people for self-determination. Morocco lately enjoyed the African Union in 2016. And since then, it's achievement for us because now they sit in the same table as us. So they have to, for some reason, they have to recognize actually we are a country and we are a, we are a member of the uh, African Union. And if they want to support or if they believe in the African values and what they stand for, they support to, you know, cooperate with us and, uh, yeah, give us our land back. Well, they haven't done that yet, have they? No, they haven't. <laughs> so is the tension then in those meetings between Morocco and the representatives of Western Sahara? My personal experience that I have actually experienced some tension when they said, like, they are not sitting with me because I'm not a country. They don't recognize me. So the reply from the African Union that this meeting is uh, for African member states and Western Sahara is a member state, so they have the meeting has to go on any, without any uh, travel, yeah. What about connections with the people in the occupied territories? How do you connect with your relatives? I'm sure you do have relatives still yeah. in the occupied territories. You have yeah. access to internet and all those sorts yeah. of things. Is that how it happens? Nowadays, it's very, uh, very... Uh, I mean, we are very happy that we have uh, WhatsApp and, you know, Facebook when we connect... But uh, we always care and worry about what happened to the other part of, you know, on the other side, behind the wall, what will happen to those people. So we always try to keep our conversation very casual, just like mainly focusing on to ask how are you, how's... We can't really discuss our case and we can't really discuss politics because 
it's always a danger that this per, that person or my my fa- for example my aunt or my cousins they will suffer uh, human abuse after this call because we believe that everything that's done in the co- it's monitored they will be counted for so your family was separated in 1975-76? Yes, my family was separated. I lost one of my uncles. I never got the chance to meet him. My aunt now, she's very old, she's old, very old, and I might not even see her. In the, in the early refugee camp, I still remember sending pictures and naming the members, saying, oh, number one is me, Tikber, the number two is my mom, you know trying to to give them, you know, a name to the face so they can know, and then recording tapes with all our details and stuff. And we always say, oh, we'll see you soon because a referendum is coming very soon, and, you know. And now, you know, you start losing family. You start, old people start getting dying, and you don't actually get the chance to meet them. What about boredom for the younger people? Is that a big problem? I know that the fighting ended many, many years ago, but... Do you have sort of, because of the young people feeling nothing's happening, we can't stay here for the rest of their life, something's got to happen? Yeah, that's, that's actually the issue right now is in the early, early years after the ceasefire, everything, all we were focusing on peaceful resolution. We believe the international law, it will happen, it will happen now, tomorrow, you know, next year. Every, uh, UN resolution, we're always optimistic that it will grant us the self-determination. But now with, you know, with lectures, year after year, with rejections, uh, younger generation, they are not really believing in, in the, you know, in the UN or in peaceful resolutions. So they are pressuring the government. We're not going to stay here for the rest of our lives and then we're not going to spend the best of our years waiting, you know, for, uh, you know, UN. Let's just start the war and let's see what's happened. The government response? The government response always, okay, we got this, uh, you know, there is a resolution coming up, trying to, you know, to calm them down, but I don't know. I don't know for how long. Because there are a lot of young people there. There are a lot of younger generation who are very... Uh, and they have been outside the country, they know what they And now, are. exactly, and now because of the internet and because of the Facebook, they see a lot of movement, they see a lot of, you know, people fighting, and then they see resolutions. They, for example, in South Sudan, they grant them like a referendum, and, you know, they see people uh, going for what they want and, you know, getting it. So, yeah. It's a problem. The, it's a problem coming up, so I don't know. Can I just talk for a few, ask you to talk for a few minutes about the culture of the people in the camps? You must have big celebrations for weddings, babies being born, children finishing their exams. How does it work? It's, it's really beautiful because we have, regardless, we have very rich culture and very, a very beautiful culture. Uh, I always say that until now, and that's why I believe that actually we are distinctive because in the wedding celebration, I think we are the only culture in the world that celebrates wedding when the groom and the bride not there. <laughs> so, so, for example, the two families will enjoy celebrating the wedding, you know, with a feast, with a camel, killing camel, you know, having very nice music and stuff. And the groom is hiding somewhere and the bride is hiding somewhere. So they are not actually present in the, you know. So that's that, that's just how distinctive we are from the Moroccans. So you can actually understand that. 
And then I didn't know this before I went to UWC when I experienced different culture and different wedding ceremonies. And yeah, we are so different. Yeah, the baby ceremony also different because we wait for one week and then we celebrate the naming of that baby. So we don't actually give the name directly to the uh, to the baby. We wait one week and then the old um, the grandmothers they sit down and they talk and you know they have to agree with the woman on the name that they want to celebrate to name the child. So it's very also unique to our culture that our older you know generation participate in the name of the the newborn. Not like, for example, the mother and the father deciding the names. And because it's um, a refugee camp, all the families live together. There's no getting married and going off to another no, house. No, <laughs> no. And not also everybody is like, we're kind of a very supportive committee. So even a community, even like, for example, uh, the wedding, if all the family gather to make that wedding, the two families has to, to come together and to make that wedding work and celebrate it to the, to the fullest. So... You are not alone. <laughs> now, what you need is support all the time. How is Australia supporting Western Sahara? Or the people of Australia supporting Western Sahara? I think one of my aim is to actually raise awareness so people of Australia will know about Western Sahara. And once they do that, <laughs> they can support in any means. I mean, they can support at the individual level when they can just raise awareness to among their friends and family and, you know, see who has higher power, you know, to get involved. And also they can donate uh, to the FIDA, which they have project Union Aid Abroad. They have projects uh, mainly to Western Sahara. And, yeah, we are really interested in a kind of a political movement if they can pressure the parties and the parliament to make statements to the Moroccans. About. So a feeder has actually brought you to Australia? Yeah, they support like the educational trainings mm. and the awareness and they, yeah, and sometimes they support directly to the aid when there is a natural disaster which has been happening. Mm-hmm. Actually climate change is really on because we have been receiving heavy rain uh, for a few years now. Actually just came in August, Lyon was flooded. We are experiencing unusual rain every year now, so which was really unusual in desert, you know, climate. And uh, since the refugee camp is built from bricks, clay, people are losing their home every year, basically, and try to rebuild it again. And where have you been since you've been in Australia? Who have you been speaking with? I have been in, in Sydney mainly, and I came to Melbourne the day before yesterday. <laughs> so I have been doing some lectures in Sydney University, and I met with actually the Union Aid Broad also. I met with, um, I did some interviews and media with Philip Adams. And there is a, an article coming up. I will name it later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you will read it later. And uh, Green Left Weekly. And um, yes. And yeah, on Thursday I have, a, I have a lecture at the Institute for Postcolonial Studies. So that will be around 7.30. 7880 Cordzone Street, North Melbourne. Is there any last message you have for the people listening to you today? First of all, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, if they can help in any means, the Sahrawi people will be very uh, grateful. And just knowing that somebody supports you from across the continents, it's a big achievement for us. Thank you. And you've been listening to Tikba Aman Salah.
advocate for human rights who lives in the Sahrawi refugee camps in southwest Algeria and works for the Ministry of Health in those camps. Now, if you'd like to contact a feeder to offer support for Western Sahara, the website is https. I think maybe the best thing might be, rather than give you a long, drawn-out thing, is to just say, do a Google search for a feeder, A-P-H-E-D-A, and I'm sure that you'll find a link there to donating to Western Sahara. And also, there is a dinner tonight, but that's sold out. But on Thursday night at the Institute of Postcolonial Studies, the lecturers features or was a panel calling for rights and recognition. And there's a panel including Julia Denham from La Trobe University. Tikba will be there. Randy Irwin from the University of Newcastle. Kamal Fidel, a representative of the Polisario in Western Australia, in Western Sahara, and he's um, both in Australia and New Zealand. So I, I would suggest that for that one, you might um, contact the Institute for Postcolonial Studies. That's Thursday, this Thursday, the 12th of September at 7.30pm, calling for rights and recognition at 78 to 80 Curzon Street, North Melbourne, and um, see if you can get a ticket to go and listen to not only Tikbar but also five other speakers on the t- topic. You're listening to 3CR. The time is eight minutes past five o'clock. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. On the Latin American Update program on 3CR last Sunday, Sasha Gillisakakis outlined some of the history and the present challenges facing the Amazon and the Indigenous peoples. The Amazon is a remarkably diverse, staggeringly large and important region of the world, composed of labyrinthine river systems and tropical forests larger than many countries. This region, and the remnants of its indigenous people, is currently under immense threat from global capitalism. Today's special will chart the dramatic and terrible history of the Amazon region's indigenous people, looking at their survival, the survival of their culture against all odds during the colonial era, following independence, and of course, in the modern day. But first, we must begin with the remarkable societies that inhabited Brazil prior to the arrival of the Europeans, and how they functioned before their way of life was so savagely torn asunder. For over 8,000 years prior to the arrival of the Europeans in the Amazon, this region of Latin America had been inhabited by a varied array of cultures, tribes, and societies, each of which that had its own history and language. Some of the better established were the Guarani people, originally from what is now Paraguay, who came to settle not only in the southern Amazon, but along the coast of Brazil as well. The large Tacuna tribe, as well as the reclusive Yanomami. Scholars have estimated that between three and five million indigenous people inhabited the Amazon alone at this time, if not more. A far greater population size than that of Portugal and Spain combined at the time. What researchers have found most fascinating about the ancient societies of the Amazon was their capacity to live in harmony with nature. Largely nomadic hunter-gatherers, the resources of a particular region were never entirely depleted by its indigenous inhabitants. 
Moreover, a recent study relying on the analysis of tree rings, which indicate a tree's age, have found that Amazonian tribes had for thousands of years been domesticating and controlling the growth of important crops, such as the Brazil nut tree, with little to no impact on the health of the forest itself. Sadly, as we will soon find out, this has changed dramatically. When in the 1500s the Portuguese arrived in Brazil, the consequences for the Amazon's indigenous people were catastrophic. 90% of Brazil's total indigenous population was completely wiped out through a combination of violence and disease, and those indigenous tribes that remained were largely, though not exclusively, confined to the Amazon and other interior regions. This is because the Portuguese were unable to completely conquer this inhospitable region until several hundred years after they had first landed. The weather, navigation issues and lack of appropriate technology meant that the Amazon's greatest threat did not arrive until much later, as it was simply too difficult to establish a stronghold there. Thousands more native Amazonians would perish like their counterparts across Latin America as the victims of slave hunting expeditions and arbitrary violence, and many of their cultures were eradicated by the evangelization campaign initiated in the 1570s by the Portuguese Catholic Church. So dire did conditions become that by the end of the 1500s, there was a mass exodus of many indigenous peoples to the Amazon region, where they thought they could escape colonial persecution. As the colony expanded and grew, indigenous tribes in the Amazon were increasingly set upon by wealthy European profiteers looking to strike big in the Amazon, lured by the vast resources that the region contained. But most of all, land was what drove these individuals to the Amazon. Vast tracts of the region were cut down to accommodate cattle, sugar and later soybean farms that enriched the colonial elite, often either forcing indigenous people further toward the remote and harsh borders of the colony or seeing them forced into slave labour on these estancias and farms. Independence brought no respite for the Amazon's people. The newly proclaimed Empire of Brazil only sought to expand the extractive tendencies of the Portuguese, sacrificing the land rights of indigenous communities in the name of economic growth. It was during this period that the truly powerful families of Brazil emerged, those with so much land, either through cattle farming or some other endeavour, that local and oftentimes national politics were beholden to their whim. These aptly named senores were, after 1822, allowed to do as they saw fit with indigenous land after Brazil's emperor stopped the process of granting land titles. This essentially abandoned the country to the whim of those with the power and money to control others. Inevitably, this led to conflict between these capitalists and the indigenous people, and the superior firepower and brutality of the senores often meant that it was the Amazon's indigenous inhabitants who suffered most. Once Brazil became a republic, a staggering array of human rights violations continued to be perpetrated against indigenous people in the Amazon. Over 80 indigenous tribes were destroyed between 1900 and 1957 through many of the processes discussed above. Then in 1964, the military assumed control of the country in a US-backed coup and imposed one of the most repressive regimes in Brazil's history. In the Amazon, where protests for greater land rights were still an intermittent problem for the regime, the military established the Guarda Rural Indígena, or GRIN, a police force composed of indigenous men trained to police their own people. GRIN was trained in the art of torture and was responsible for protecting those military envoys sent to the Amazon to begin programs of cultural assimilation. Or oftentimes, they outright removed indigenous communities from their lands to make way for development projects and private farms. 
Green was also responsible for establishing reformatories in the Amazon, where indigenous people who refused to leave their land were sent to be re-educated. Some scholars have labelled these as ethnic concentration camps. Close to 100 indigenous people between 1969 and 1972 were charged with unfounded accusations of theft, aggression and undue sexual relations as excuses to be sent to the reformatories. What is more, something that the Brazilian regime had in common with others of its ilk in Latin America were the disappearances of political opponents. The Brazilian Truth Commission into Crimes of the Military suggested that including indigenous victims of the dictatorship in this study could potentially quintuple the number of victims. The commission makes reference to a particular case, that of the Wamiri Atroari tribe, all 2,000 of whom vanished between 1968 and 1983. And whilst there is not sufficient evidence to attribute this to the military dictatorship at this stage, it cannot be doubted that they had a part to play. After all, the removal of indigenous people from their lands in the name of development and modernisation had already been a tried and tested tactic in Brazil long before the 20th century. The briefest glimmer of hope for the Amazon emerged with the arrival of the Workers' Party to power in the early 2000s, though even this was fraught with controversy. Though Lula and Dilma instituted desperately needed reforms to indigenous health and education programs and slowed the destruction of the Amazon, both foreign and local capitalist interests continued to persecute indigenous people and sway local and national governments in their favour, often slowing the creation of indigenous protected reserves. This brings us to the present, where the Amazonian indigenous people are quite literally facing what is close to extinction. Jair Bolsonaro, the fascist, homophobic and racist president of Brazil, has expressed his hatred for the indigenous people of the country countless times and, most concerning for us, is adamant in his belief that the Amazon should be bulldozed and transformed into an industrial park to fuel Brazil's economy. What is worse, this has already begun. Bolsonaro has severely curtailed the number of protected indigenous reserves in Brazil, granted rights to multinationals to exploit this land and its people as cheap labour, and has even looked at privatising indigenous healthcare and education programs. This has seen right-wing paramilitary groups attack indigenous and environmental leaders, often killing them. And just weeks ago, as we've discussed, horrific fires erupted in the Amazon. These have been caused by cattle ranchers, loggers and corporations that have now wantonly engaged in the destruction of the Amazon in the name of profit, more than ever since Bolsonaro abolished most of the laws and fines surrounding environmental regulation. Huge swathes of the forest are currently dying and indigenous communities are fighting tooth and nail to defend their homes. Already several indigenous people have been killed in the blaze and concerns have been raised for the many as of yet uncontacted tribes inhabiting the region that could well be destroyed without us even knowing. And what has Bolsonaro done to address this planet-spanning crisis? Nothing. He refused to acknowledge that it was even a problem until international condemnation forced him to implement a largely symbolic ban on lighting fires in the Amazon, which the corporate elite have ignored regardless. The indigenous people of the Amazon have suffered through slavery, genocide, torture and marginalisation. Now they face not only an environmental threat, but once again a threat to their very existence as a people. If Bolsonaro continues ahead with his capitalist plans to destroy the Amazon, then these people, Brazil and our planet, have a very bleak future ahead. And thanks to Sasha for that research. And you can hear more 
on the Latin American Update program every Sunday morning at 10.30 here on 3CR, where it's time. 18 minutes past five. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Australian troops, planes and warships, we are being told, will help protect shipping, i.e. protecting freedom of navigation in the Strait of Hormuz and protect the Gulf region from devastating behaviour. And surprise, surprise, the Australian Labor Party has supported the military adventure, quote, as appropriate, unquote. But critics warn that, amongst other things, we could be breaching international law. One of those voicing concerns is the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. I spoke with Sue yesterday and pointed out that there are so many problems and dangers with this decision by Scott Morrison. And to begin with, the undeniable fact that the US-led mission in the Strait of Hormuz is a provocative act in a very unstable part of the world. Yes, we'd have to agree with that, Jan. There certainly doesn't seem to be uh, anything that would warrant military action on the part of the US and its allies. It's a very small number of allies who are joining in this. Australia stands out again. But the Australian government in particular says that they want to de-escalate this crisis, but that's a bit of a ridiculous statement if you send in the military to de-escalate a a so-called crisis that was in fact started by the United States when President Trump unilaterally withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action that was working last um, up until early this year to contain Iran's nuclear program. So it's a crisis that seems to have been manufactured by the United States and the United States seems to be itching for a fight with Iran. And as you said, there are these international partners. There's so few. Yes, there are so few. Australia, um, I guess one could say it was a foregone conclusion that Australia would join because when does Australia never join a, a US war? It just doesn't, doesn't happen these days. We don't have independent assessment of our own interests or global interests. So yes, Australia, Australia has joined. The UK has joined and Bahrain has joined. And that's about it. As far as I'm aware at this stage, most of the, in fact, I think all of the European nations have decided that this this is certainly not in their interest, it's not in anybody's interest, and they don't want to be part of it. So, yes, it's looking um, looking very, a pretty lonely position for Australia to be taking, and, as you said, a highly provocative thing to be doing. Can you see it as part of a blockade of Iran? Well, that seems to be what's being talked about, although, as we saw back in 2003, the goalposts seem to be shifting. Is this about Iran's nuclear program, or is this about law of the sea and passage to move through move through the sea? Clearly, I mean, the, what we're being told is shifting from, from week to week. 
but you'd have to wonder well, why, if it's a, a matter of blockading the Strait, Straits of Hormuz, why would Iran actually be wanting to blockade the passage of sea where a lot of its own trade passes? So what we're being told just doesn't make sense and we're not being told the full picture. And it sounds... It's reminiscent of 2003. It's reminiscent of the Gulf of Tonkin in Vietnam where an incident was manufactured as a pretext for going to war and it's looking very grubby and looking pretty nasty and very troubling. And we're not talking about a small country like Iraq or Syria. Iran's a different story, isn't it? Well, Iran is a big nation, 80 million people, with quite a strong capacity to defend itself. And we should look at the history of Iran. They've had to try to defend themselves with aggression from outside over quite a long period. Not aggression from Iran towards other countries, but aggression from other countries towards Iran, including the British um, early last century. So, uh, yes, it's different from Iraq, but in, in any event, I think we need to recognise that when we go to war, the people who are most likely to pay the bulk of the cost are civilians. And if this crisis escalates further, then that's almost certainly going to be the case again, that civilians will pay the major cost of military action. And already civilians are paying the cost of the economic sanctions that are in place against Iran. We know that certain types of um, medications, pharmaceuticals, including cancer drugs, are not getting into Iran in the quantities that are needed, and uh, those shortages are having an impact already. So the outlook for civilians is extremely concerning. That's what the US or other countries always say when they put these sanctions on. Oh, it's not targeting the people, it's targeting the leaders, but it does target the poor to turn the people away from their government. Yes, and in fact, sanctions generally have the tight economic sanctions would generally have the opposite effect. Certainly in, in the case of Iraq, the sanctions that were in place during the 1990s were, they were the most crippling that the, the world had seen in a long time, probably in, uh, in much of history, and had a huge impact on civilians. And yet Saddam Hussein was able to turn the situation around to his own benefit to say, look at what the US does, we have to resist this pressure. So we could expect the same to happen again. More and more voices are coming out and saying this could be illegal, what the US is planning? Well, yes, there's not much doubt about that. There are two situations in which a country can lawfully use military force, and that is if the country is under attack and needs to defend itself. Well, that doesn't apply to Australia at the moment, doesn't apply to the US. The other situation is if there's a UN Security Council resolution in favour of the military force, and that certainly doesn't apply at the moment. So, yes, any military action in the Straits of Hormuz or elsewhere in relation to Iran would be illegal. And our government talks a lot and a lot about the rule of law, but when the rule of law is really, really important and is inconvenient for the government, then the Australian government ignores it. What about the role of debating such a situation in Parliament? That's another thing that's overlooked in Australia. There's virtually no transparency about all of this for Australians and even our parliamentarians are not consulted, not kept 
up to date they can, um, except what they can read in the newspapers and there's no, really no accountability for our parliamentarians to take a stand on this, to be consulted and to say should Australia be taking military action in this situation and it's something that our parliamentarians should be called on to think about and to take a position on. If this matter were to come to Parliament, then the government would need to provide some certainty, would need to provide, or at least should, with good war powers legislation, should need to provide legal advice to the effect that the proposed military action is lawful, should need to provide advice about the strategy, what are, you, what are we actually trying to achieve, when are we likely to achieve it, what's the exit strategy, what's likely economic cost, what's likely cost on civilians, it's a really important one, who's going to look after the civilians, what's the cost on our ADF likely to be. None of these things get addressed or if they do, it's behind closed doors and the rest of us don't know anything about the answers that are given to these questions. And of course the the Labor Party has supported this military adventure, saying it's appropriate. Well, it's extremely disappointing, uh, all the more so because in 2003, Labor Minister then, Simon Crean, to his great credit, didn't support John Howard's proposed joining in President Bush's war, war against Iraq then. And if Labor had been listened to on that occasion, then the history, at least Australia's part in that debacle, would have been very, very, very different in a, in a much better way. So, yes, it's extremely disappointing to see Labor just falling in behind the government on this latest ill-conceived idea of military action against Iran. Resumption of talks, resumption of talks on the nuclear issue, resumption of talks to stop this action that they're talking about. Who's going to lead that? Yes, in, Australia is in an interesting situation there in that Australia, unlike the US, has a diplomatic presence in Tehran, in Iran. We still have an embassy there. And yet as far as we can tell, Australia, Australian government doesn't seem to be using our embassy there for actually talking with the Iranian government. And this is hugely important. If we want to de-escalate a crisis, which government says they want to do, then why are we not talking, talking, talking? As Winston Churchill says, jaw, 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 rather than war, war, war. We've always got to exhaust the negotiation options before going to war. And almost certainly that hasn't been done in this case. What would you like to happen? All of the above? Well, yes, what needs to happen is that there needs to be... Uh, we need to get back to the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, which was the Six Nation Agreement which was effectively keeping Iran's nuclear program um, away from nuclear weapons. That was working, and President Trump unilaterally withdrew from it in May last year and created this crisis. So we need to get back to that Joint Comprehensive Program of Action. Australia should be upholding it as strongly as possible. The government says they still support it, but going to war is not going to not going to help with that so we need to be Australia should be insisting and we would encourage listeners to make it known to our government that we want them to strongly uphold the joint comprehensive program of action to insist that our ally the US goes back to it resumes its role in that agreement which was highly effective uh, and encourages the European parties to the agreement 
to stick by it and not to fall away. As far as we can tell, thus far, the European nations are still party to the agreement, but with the military action, then who knows whether the whole thing's going to crumble. So Australia really needs to be insisting that we uphold this agreement, which was a very good exercise in diplomacy and negotiation, and that's what Australia should be focusing on, and telling our neighbour, the U, um, our ally, the US, that no, we don't want war, thank you very much, we want negotiations. And finally, Sue, as far as Australia concerned, there is time because these troops aren't troops and hardware aren't scheduled to be leaving until January next year. Well, yes, perhaps later this year. But, yes, there certainly isn't any time urgency about this, which the government has clearly recognised. So if there's no time urgency about this, then why are they not insisting to our ally that we've got to go back to negotiations and not talk to the Iran about going back to the negotiating table, but talk to the US about going back to the negotiating table because that's the party that left the table. So, yes, there's nothing time critical about this and we need to be insisting on negotiations and not military action. Thanks, Sue. Thank you very much, Jan. Dr Sue Wareham, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. On this program over many years, human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy has spoken about many issues impacting on people, not only here in Australia but in many countries. But what makes a lifetime activist? What drives people to dedicate their lives to improving those of others and at what cost? I spoke with Peter yesterday and my first question was, can you remember your first political act or activity? Probably something minor before, but, um, you know, in high school, I, I suppose there was something happened about the quality of the food in the tuck shop, but the real thing was when the Springbok football team came to Brisbane in 1971, so I was able to attend the protest. How old were you, Peter? 17, okay. 18. What was that like? It was actually a huge event, and um, I was just, you know, on my own in a, in a way. At the time, I was studying to be a priest, so I'd come down from the seminary, and most of the people with me went to the football match, and I went to the protest. We had to wait for hours and hours in Victoria Park, um, not too far from the football ground, because that was as close as the police allowed us to go while the match was on. And then after that, the many speeches uh, were made uh, to while away that couple of hours. Then we did march to the entrance of the showground where the, the game took place and uh, sort of formed a vigil to confront all of the people who went to the football match. And then afterwards, we, we marched up to the Tower Mill Motel where the, the Springbok team was staying and gathered across the road and, and that's where the police had a riot and uh, injured a lot of people in the dark on, on a hillside there. I, I was very lucky not to get uh, caught up in that, you know, just just being on the edge of it or something. The, uh, the police just missed me. You know, I was very shocked by what took place. Now, you say you left the seminary and you were 17 or 18. How old were you when you went in? I was 16. I didn't leave till I was 20. That's very young, isn't it? Yeah, but that's when I finished high school. So, you know, what it's like, you 
got to decide whether you're going to go to university or TAFE or work or what, what are you going to do? I decided I didn't want to be an engineer and I, I chose to go to the seminary and it was obviously a religious thing but it was also an idealistic path. You know. And what convinced you in the end to leave? Oh, I, I had to, to deal with my sexuality and the authoritarianism of the church. There was a sort of a... They clashed. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the you know the, the incredible conservatism of the Catholic Church, uh, you know, really was crushing. And uh, I decided that I couldn't spend my whole life fighting that. The, uh, the sexuality thing sort of uh, made me realise that, uh, you know, my religious upbringing was more based on fear. Sort of showed me that this was just a big mistake, and so I sort of moved away from that form of, uh, you know, approach to life. Did you become part of the gay rights movement early on? In 1975, yeah, so a couple of years later I was in Sydney and uh, I joined the Communist Party and uh, some of the students in our group were uh, gay. Anyway, there was uh, quite a discussion about uh, gay liberation and uh, gay and lesbian rights and so on and and... I supported that and then, uh, you know, I realised in my own self, you know, I was bisexual really and uh, I got caught up in the violence of the 1978 Mardi Gras in Sydney and, you know, that was a very traumatic event forever. You know, I'm a, I'm a sort of symbol of uh, the fight for gay rights or gay and lesbian rights, it's LGBTQI plus yes. rights. Yeah. Can you talk about 1978? Well, it was a very um, uh, big year in a way. Uh, I, I was uh, unemployed and uh, at a bit of a loose end. There was quite a severe economic recession going on and uh, it was very difficult to find work. Uh, so I was a volunteer with a um, trade union and left-based uh, research group called Transnational Cooperative and I was quite enjoying myself, you know, in a very poor income um, of the unemployment benefit but, uh, you know, it was stimulating and uh, I was no longer part of the student movement and it's a little detached from the dynamics I'd been in for a few years. Um, but the Mardi Gras came along as an idea. It was quite exciting to have this uh, concept of changing the the form of the campaign a bit away from what I think we considered routine routine uh, protest marches and forums and so on. And so the street party idea was a new one and uh, there was a debate about whether it was a sellout or uh, how political it was or whatever, but uh, you know, I was one of the ones who, who strongly supported the idea as a way to provide a different space for gay and lesbian people to express themselves and assert their presence in society. It, it really, you know, was a traumatic night, I must say, Jan, but uh, it had its great um, highs as well as its terrible lows and uh, we had thousands on the street for it instead of uh, three or four hundred for a protest march. So, you know, it was already pretty, really obvious that it was a very good idea and we, we made an impact and of course we made an impact in a way we never imagined 
uh, when the police really monstered it, and uh, there was there were some really shocking uh, assaults on uh, on our people. But the dynamic that night also meant that uh, in, in Kings Cross, when that happened, uh, the people in our group didn't cower, didn't just meekly, you know, file into the police wagons. But um, really, there was a lot of resistance on the street. And uh, the population in Kings Cross was on our side. So, you know, the police were very embattled. And, and I even there sitting in a paddy wagon, you know, uh, I could see that something changed that night. You know, it was actually an anniversary of the Stonewall Day. This year's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and uh, the 41st anniversary of the Mardi Gras. And uh, so, in a way, it was our Stonewall and it, it did become the turning point. Now, you remember the trade unions at that time. How did that move on? I had a, a one year's work with the Australian Union of Students as an organiser here in New South Wales and uh, in 77, you know, we all joined the Clarks Union, which was a terribly extreme you know, right-wing union leadership. And, uh, you know, it was sort of uh, between the student movement and the Communist Party, of course, and was definitely drummed into me about the value of the trade union movement and the history, important history of trade unionism in Australia. So, yes, I, I was very um, committed to the union movement and, uh, you know, those years of unemployment meant that I was not really in a union all the time. But we, in the, also in 1978, organised a thing called the Unemployed People's Union, which was, uh, the acronym was UPU. They did some really great uh, work in fighting for job creation programs and it had, had its impact. So in the next four, four or five years, you know, one way or the other, I was, I was supportive. And uh, I ended up going to live in Adelaide in 1981. I got some temporary work through the what was then the Miscellaneous Workers' Union pickup in Port Adelaide. And, and then I even got a job in the Department of Social Security, so I became a member of the ACOA at the time. Then I got a job at sea, so I became a seafarer and a member of the quaintly titled um, Federated Marine Stewards and Pantry Men's Association, mm-hmm. which uh, towards the end of my time at sea, we amalgamated with the Siemens Union. Yeah, after that, I, I came and worked in Sydney for the Communist Party and worked on the, the newspaper, the Tribune. So we joined the the, was then the Australian Journalists Association. Now it's the Media Alliance. So I've been a member of the Media Alliance since the 80s. So you were a member of the Communist Party? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I probably theoretically still am, but uh, it really stopped operating as a party in 1991. A new party was formed at the time called the New Left Party, so I was a member of that. But it collapsed in 1993, so... Since then, I haven't really been a member of any political party. Where does the Search Foundation fit into this? Well, the Search Foundation was set up by the Communist Party to hold all of its assets and uh, sort of legacy material as this process of forming the New Left Party took place to reassure the CPA members that uh, you know, no one was going to you know, nick off with uh, the cash or, or misuse it. So it was meant to preserve those assets and uh, certainly preserve the historical records of the CPA and um, to use the income from the assets to advance the 
broad goals that the CPA had, which which was a socialist republic of Australia. When did you become interested in the situation in other countries? Oh, well, I suppose uh, way, way back when I was going to be a priest even, you know. Uh, I think uh, 1960s and 1970s was a time of, you know, terrific uh, change, a sort of, uh, you know, the youth, the youth revolution, I suppose, and that cultural revolution was going on. The women's movement was uh, a huge factor. The Vietnam War uh, actually absolutely dominated my family and um, a lot of Australian, you know, public debate for years and years at that time. You know, in the church even, you know, the idea of the missionary priest and um, helping the poor and standing up for justice uh, were, were pretty strong. Not that they were dominant, but uh, they were part of the picture. So I think, you know, from a young age, I, I always thought about humanity and the whole world. And, um, and when I finally sort of got into some formal politics, it was, uh, you know, the communist movement was an international movement as well. And uh, the Vietnam War was a huge solidarity issue for the Communist uh, Party in Australia. And uh, there were so many other campaigns which emerged virtually at the same time, you know, the, like the uh, independence movement in Timor it was a new thing and it was a very, you know, engaging issue for Australians in 1974, 75, 76. And, you know, in the very, for a very long time, also around that period, the anti-apartheid movement was, you know, a very important, sustained campaign. You know, I, I think I can recall, you know, even in primary school, having to write some sort of essay about, you know, apartheid. There, I, that would have been in a Catholic, you know, school. So the nuns, I think, made us uh, compare the civil rights movement in, in the United States and, and the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. I, I was sort of aware about the, the anti-apartheid and, and in a way engaged in it. And you can see the very first political event I really went to was about that. What was your first overseas trip? I think uh, was I went to New Zealand. Well, that's a long way. <laughs> that was very exciting, yeah, my first trip overseas. And uh, it was great because some comrades had gone off to the World Youth Festival in Cuba. It must have been in 1978. And they met some Maori uh, women activists there. And uh, they came over, three, or, two or three of them came to Sydney for a few months in 1979, I think, to uh, study or visit somebody and they joined our Marxist reading group and got, I got to know them a bit and, and the trip to New Zealand was uh, Christmas in 1979 to stay with one of those families and uh, it was you know, a real insight into the colonial history the Maori culture and uh, their own pretty vibrant uh, campaign to assert their rights at that time. Yeah, I found that was, was great and it wasn't too long. You know, a couple of years later, I was a seafarer, and then I was travelling on ships overseas. What were you doing on the ship? It's like a hotel worker. I was a cleaner and caterer sort of worker. So I would uh, clean the cabins of uh, offices of the ship, serve their food, wash the dishes, serve afternoon tea, you know, clean the alleyways around their accommodation. So it was a seven-day-a-week blitz shift sort of thing. So you woke up at 
5.30. I think he finished around 6.30 at night with a couple of hours off in the, after lunch. How far from Australia did you travel? So the voyages went, uh, you know, went up to the east coast of the United States to Canada and back through the Panama Canal. And uh, the, you know, the first voyage I went on was to South Korea, to, to Incheon, and then to Hong Kong and then Manila and then back to Australia. That was a relatively big trip. But the biggest one of all was in 1985. I was on the delivery crew of the Abel Tasman, which was the first of the sort of new generation of passenger ferries between Melbourne and Devonport. And uh, so we had to fly to, to Germany to collect the ship and uh, sail it you know, through the Straits of Gibraltar, through the Suez Canal, across the Indian Ocean, all the way to Tasmania. So that was the longest voyage, I suppose. It was also incredibly eventful. Those hours that you were working, did you have any time to look at the countries that you were travelling through and in? Only a very little. The thing about the ship is that it goes to ports, uh, which are often industrial, well, they are industrial sites in their own right, but generally, you know, you, you're coming into a port that's... Uh, at a, some sort of steel mill or an oil refinery or something like that. The shipping company wants the turnaround to be very fast, so one day, two days. You know, I think the longest I ever stayed in any port was three days. The tankers that I worked on, it was very fast turnaround, and you might get a, a morning or an afternoon where you could go ashore. Yeah, so it was pretty different. You know, it's not tourism, that's for sure, but it, it, all the same, it was very interesting. So when you think now the countries that you've focused on, Timor, Philippines, Zimbabwe, South Africa, West Papua, Bougainville, were you meeting people here from those countries? Yeah, yeah. The way it worked back in the 70s, you know, air travel was quite expensive. Even then, you know, like an airfare to Europe then was $2,000. Today it's $2,000. But we have had all that inflation in between and, uh, you know, so, you know, it was a very expensive thing then and people just couldn't travel much and and, uh, information flow was by publications which came in the mail. Occasional person travelled, did have meetings and so occasional people, you know, especially if you fundraised here and organised for the tour, a speaking tour of one or two people from one of these movements was a pretty significant event. That's really how things happen. So we did have a few Timorese here. For instance, in in 75 and 76, um, we had visits from uh, ANC and other anti-apartheid activists from South Africa occasionally. We had uh, some people come from Vanuatu. uh, You know, people might even remember these particular anti-colonial struggles, but they were around in the late 1970s. The New Hebrides, it was called, it's now Vanuatu, got its independence from Britain and France. And uh, even in 75, PNG got its independence from Australia. There was occasional visits from them. And one, that's one of the tasks I got, you know, as a, quite a young person, probably in 1978, when I was unemployed and flexible, I would be asked to just escort, say, uh, I can still remember Hilda Leany, she was a very impressive person from Vanuatu to visit different people, politicians and aid agency people in particular, church people um, in Sydney to 
let her inform them of developments going on in their struggle. Yeah, so, you know, it was a pretty mundane task, but it was the in, inner workings, really, of the solidarity movement that I was witnessing and then being a part of in a simple way. The other thing that we did, of course, was create newsletters to inform the networks in, in, in these movements about the developments going on. There was a sort of a really specific task of boiling down those publications that came from overseas into another text that was uh, aimed at an Australian audience and then the actual printing and uh, mailing out. <laughs> there was lots of um, folding and putting in envelopes and stuff like that as part of this work. Yes, people who have grown up with the internet have no idea of what the work was like at that time. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. But uh, in a way it was a more... It's hard to, to compare the times, but I think doing all of that work, especially having to discuss, you know, what is really going on with much less sort of intensity of information meant people were a bit more coherent about their arguments and their thinking, you know, and better, a bit better organised. Now, if you just... It's really routine. I do it all the time myself. I simply forward on whole articles written for a different audience <laughs> to people and I just leave it up to them to figure it out and everything's at such a high speed you know people can't really read all that much compared to what's available so it's you know it's sort of a looser and uh, you know less consistent sort of situation I think in our in our movements today. And some of those people who did manage to come to Australia they're lifelong friends for you I'm thinking of Seko Holland as one. Yeah, well, she she was here and uh, living in Australia in the 70s. I can still recall her giving a speech at that rally in Victoria Park in Brisbane in 1971. And I got to see her when I was... She came as a guest lecturer to Macquarie Uni where I was a student and uh, I got to sort of say hello and stuff there. But uh, it was there in the late 1970s so that I, I, I mixed a lot more with her in some of this campaign work. And she left the country in 1980 uh, when uh, Mugabe's government was uh, formed in Zimbabwe and uh, she didn't come back at all until 1999. And I don't think we heard much from her until about 1998. So yeah, it was a long time between um, drinks there. But it's true, if you can interact with, the, do this type of work with some people, certainly very much uh, creates a strong bond it can be a little confusing you know what is the bond it's uh, there is friendship in it but it's not necessarily actually that it's uh, it's really this uh, being driven by the demands of very very dire circumstances of these struggles to living through very stressful things together and helping each other that does create a, a bond which is it's political as much as it might be friendship. And things can break down. <laughs> Even after a long time, things can break down. It's, it's, it's uh, hard to understand that. I can see, you know, with the Philippines, where I've visited many times, so it's been me visiting there, some of the Filipino union leaders visiting here, you know, less often. You know, that definitely a very strong sense of uh, solidarity is there and the bonds, the sense of closeness, it's, it's very compelling. And the same applies to the Timorese, some of whom lived here in exile for a long time and now I see them in, in Timor-Leste.
nearly every year. That's very, it's all very important, and it's. I think the relationships in the end is what I see as the, the really important thing to to build, and the actual issues it's built around they cha- they change uh, over the years and over the decades. But uh, the future that we could create that's a better future for everyone is is going to be really be built in the, through the quality of these relationships. And of course, there's plenty of issues right here in Australia for you to focus on. Yes, yes. Probably it's a really important reality check, you know, that all of this international work is built on the national, the national or domestic relationships and uh, vision. You know, the reason we might uh, campaign hard against the war uh, or, you know, for land rights or for trade union rights in another country is because those are very important things here and they're things that we, we work on hard here in Australia. We're in Bleaksville, really, in Australia, uh, from the point of view of the progressive movement, and uh, you know it's really demanding you know, to continue to to find ways to to try to advance the sense of uh, community, sense of justice, and sense of equality uh, against you know what we see in in so many different parts of our society now. What's gone wrong with the progressive movements? I don't think uh, too much is gone wrong like my, in my experience you know there's more people than ever uh, in Australia willing to speak up and uh, to stand up for good values and uh, good policies and to protest against really you know outrageous abuse but uh, when the, the thing is it's not very united the longer term vision that could unite people is, has disintegrated over a period of the Probably, you'd have to go really back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s to see the roots of that. So it's a long time, and you know, it's a long process, and it started a long time ago. But I feel like we're still in the disintegration <laughs> phase. It's a difficult environment uh, to work in, but at the same time, we live every day with uh, looking at the the way Aboriginal people are treated, the way the refugee people are abused incredible sort of security state that's being created in Australia which is very much uh, repressing basic rights of everyone endemic uh, you know economic fragility of the place so that the the income you know the, the really basic things about incomes secure work respected work they're all really up for grabs you know we, we're going backwards on all of that but if you're living in it of course you you have to try to work against the the bad things that you see there's no as i say there's no shortage of people who are willing to to do that a lot of confidence that somehow we'll find our way forward and not only the older generation but the young generation coming up yes you see so many young people and you know where september 20 is just a friday week the, the, the numbers will be huge and the uh, passion and the, the vision of the young people will come, come forward. If you need a reassurance <laughs> about the next generation, you, you'll see it there. And, uh, but I, I see that all the time. So. so it's a glass half full? I think it's uh, probably a glass really shaking. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, everything needs to be seen in perspective and Australia is a really good country to live in uh, for pretty well everyone in it but there's uh, some very harsh things happening here and you know it is uh, traveling in the wrong direction it won't be so good forever if we don't 
change things but uh, one of the benefits of travelling overseas and seeing what people have to cope with in different countries you can see that Australia's got a lot to contribute we in Australia can help even with our own difficulties we can definitely help trade unions indigenous people women young people in in these in these societies like the Philippines or Indonesia or Timor West Papua certainly the, the what we call the Middle East there's a lot of scope for us to play a good role you know at the people to people level but the organizational levels and the government our, our government could do so much better and we have to find a way to create a government that will do that and thanks to Peter Murphy for sharing his story with us and that's all I've got time for today but I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock done by law in about one minute's time bye for now